Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody in between, that is Eddie Vega. And that is Chibi Ordunia. And this is Words and Shit. Brought to you by The Blah Poetry Spot and Write Art Out. The show where you get to know the person behind the poetry. Eddie, I got a question for you. Okay, Chibi, go for it. So we've both been around the slam community for a while now. Yeah. Uh, doing the damn thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm always curious as to when, how it was, because I, I love seeing poets come up in the scene, right? New poets jump in, you know, they show up at slams, they're hella eager, you know, and and I just love seeing that kind of like where they came from and where they are now and that whole trajectory. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what was it like when you first found Poetry Slam and what were your first few you know, encounters or weeks or months in the slam scene. Uh, you know, it was it was a mix of pretending that it didn't bother me that I was never making it out of the first round. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Yeah, going home and see, wondering why I didn't make it out of the first round. Um, so, but I started, you know, I went to a, a few open mics here and there and then decided, you know, I really want to do slam. I've been wanting to do this since the late 90s so i figured like you know <laughs> I figured that about 2012 was a good time to start and um i went actually as a new year's resolution for myself in january i'm like this is my new year's thing i'm gonna try poetry slam so i went and i didn't make it out of first round until spring break Ooh. and then i made it all the way to the third round at that time and then that that was the bug you know that's when the bug bit you know Mm-hmm. Uh, but I imagine yours is a little different because, like, every time that you go to slam, you like you win the damn thing. So, <laughs> I mean, these days, and I'm I'm assuming you started at San Antonio Puro Slam. Oh, Puro Slam, yeah, that's that's that was the place. It was ah, at okay. Cuba. It was uh, the big stage, and then eventually the, the basement, the basement stage. The, yeah, the, we don't talk about those years. We don't talk about those years. <laughs> Interesting. Well, no, see, I started in slam in um, the Austin Poetry Slam. Uh-huh. Um, many, many, uh, no, no, oh. many moons ago when it was at the, um, oh, the name now escapes me, but it was a bar that was off of Congress and Riverside, and it was underneath a bunch of apartment complexes. It had been there for a while. And then around the time when I started slamming and moved to the Scoot Inn, on the east side, uh, and that's where the majority of like my slam time at APS happened. And this was around the time that some would call Austin Poetry Slam's golden years. Oh. Where you had uh, Danny Strack, uh-huh. um, uh, Tony Jackson, um, uh, este, Christopher Lee, you had Andy Buck, you had uh, Dash Shade Moonbeam, you had Zell Miller the Third. These were like poetry titans. And I want to say, in the entire time that I was living in Austin, competing at Austin Poetry Slam, I never made it out of the second round. Whoa. That was a good three to four years of just constantly being second round material. <laughs> <laughs> but I would const- I would drive down to San Antonio uh, to go to Puro Slam back when it was at Sam's Burger Joint, uh, and and I would win a few slams in oh, San wow. Antonio. 
you know. So. Oh, gosh, I don't know what that says, but okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what that says. I do know it says Austin Poetry Slam was hella competitive back in the, like, at, yeah. I mean, it's still hella competitive. I mean, crowd, you know, or maybe a different size set of judges. Uh, yeah. And it was, you know, it's funny because, like, that was the time that I wrote Rich Gay. Uh. And Rich Gay wouldn't get me out of the second round. These and days, Rich Gay is a, is, is a dime. Rich Gay. <laughs> so it, it's interesting to see, you know, people's trajectory in slam and and where that takes them, both in their slam lives, but also in their poetic lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say this because we had a phenomenal conversation with Joaquin Siwatenejo, who actually didn't start in slam, started in creative writing, found slam, and yeah. just by accident, by accident, and then blew up because he is who he is. He is who he is, exactly. Tell us a little bit about Joaquin. He was awarded the 2017 Aninga Press Robert Dana Prize for Poetry. His latest collection, Arsonist, which I have in my classroom. I should have probably brought it with me, but it's in my classroom. Was published by Aninga Press in September of 2018. His work has been featured in Prairie Schooner, Sonora Review, Risache, and Southwestern American Literature, among other journals and anthologies. Joaquin received his MFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he now teaches Performance Poetry 101 to his undergrad students. His work has been featured on NBC, HBO, NPR, in Historias, and the National Teachers Initiative. Joaquin has two passions in his life, his partner, Aida, and poetry, always in that order. Uh, Every time I've spoken to Joaquin, it's it's been an amazing experience, and I'm so glad he's with us uh, here this week. Ladies and gentlemen, Joaquin Zihuatanejo. How are you doing, sir? Jimmy, Eddie, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Hey, yeah. we're so glad you could make. Now, are you in Santa Fe? No, no, no. I, I, I I'm teaching from home. Uh, so we're, you know, we're just a, uh, a little north of Dallas here in, uh, up in Big Sky Country in Denton. <laughs> oh, all right. It's well, supposed to be. It's supposed to be as cool. They call it like a little Austin. It's not nearly that cool. It's just like. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that place. I remember them pitching that to me in like high school, like Denton offered like a, a program where like you could do like your last two years of high school and your first two years of college. And they were like, it's just like Austin. It's just smaller <laughs> and more intimate, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, no, I'm calling for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they do have the coolest, uh, North Texas has the coolest um, jazz band. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jazz band. For sure. Yeah. I all the country. When, I talk with kids, when I talk with young people who are interested in music, I always tell them, like, you know, where I did my undergrad, UNT, like, it's it's world renowned for music. It's it's yeah. really, you know, if you're a music student, it's 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 a place to be. Nora Jones went there. That's that's yeah. <laughs> Eddie is a huge Nora Jones fan. Yeah. No, a couple of the Eagles went there. They didn't graduate, but they went there. And oh, yeah. uh, you know, our, our, I think that's where they got the name for the band because you know, UNT is the Eagles. Oh, oh yeah. maybe. Well, if it isn't, that's a cool story anyway. Mythology, <laughs> shall we not? But without further ado, let's go ahead and start off the way we do every week, and that is to hand the show over to you, sir, and to just bless us with some poetry. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm going to read uh, five poems, and one's really, really short, so uh, it'll feel like four. So this is uh, I'm going to read two new things uh, right off the right out the gate here. So this is called the Gospel According to My Tío Celestino. 
Who among you is wise? James 3.13. Never buy a car from Jaime Woods over on the corner of Ross and Henderson Ave. If a border runs through a man's name, you can't trust him. Believe me, I know a pinche James when I see one. He scratched his right knee through the hole in his knees. Years ago, he poured the porch we were standing on. There where the bottom step met the dirt, he etched a Spanish curse word into wet cement. But all that was left of his inscription was dejo. Back then, his abrazos were more arms and chest than belly. I football or words, mijo, if you dedicate yourself to something, you're bound to be good at it. He dated a white woman briefly whose eyes were blue on some days and green on others. It is impossible to love a woman with eyes of color you cannot name. Most days I trailed after him like a shadow trying to attach itself to flesh. He leaned on the splintered post, cleaning his reading glasses near where the side seam met the hem of a sullied v-neck undershirt. He could not read, but used them instead while painting all paint by numbers. But you would never know by looking at them from a few feet away. He handed me the empty Budweiser he had crushed in his unforgiving fist. Get your ass in the kitchen, mio, conseguime otra cerveza. The bottom right crisper where he hid his beer was as empty as a clean ashtray. I'm sorry, Theo, but there's nothing left to give you. He stood with his back to me, motionless, more statue than man, staring out at a city that was not ours. It's all good, mio. We always love most those things, those pinche things we cannot have. Simon, all the best words are in English. Better all the best curse words are in Spanish. That's a new one. Uh, I've got a few different versions of that, so I'm still playing with which one's going to end up in my new manuscript. This is a, another new one, and I think this one's just, it's its as ready as it's going to be. Um, this is for my Abuelita Juanita. Um, while that first poem is about my tío, Many of the poems in this book are about my abuelita or my ma or my uh, tias. Um, so I, I think this new manuscript is, is partly created to honor brown women, Latinx women, the women who helped shape me, especially my abuelita Juanita, who was a hellraiser. This is called Este Acte de Tomar, this act of taking, para mi abuela, for my grandmother. One. Ella había que solo un hombre podía conceder una trinidad formada por un padre, un hijo, el fantasma del hijo asesinado. She said only a man could conceive a trinity formed of a father, son, and the ghost of the slain son. Ella había que una que una de esas trinidades es imposible. She said one such trinity is impossible. Ella dice que si miras de cerca la, la estatua de la Virgen Madre en el altar, verás dónde se ha estiado la vestida azul en algunos lugares, causa, causado sin duda por las manos de hombres y reflexivos, revelando el yeso blanco debajo. Solo la Virgen Madre tiene un alma sin mancha. No puede haber padre, ni hijo, ni fantasma sin una madre que les dé toda la vida. She said, if you look at the statue of the Virgin Mother on the altar, you will see where the blue of her gown has chipped away in some places, caused no doubt by the hands of thoughtless men, revealing the white plaster beneath. Only the Virgin Mother has a soul without blemish. There can be no father, no son, no ghost, without a mother to give them all life. Two, 
ella dijo que vendrán y nos quitarán todo esto. She said they will come and take all of this from us. Ella dijo que es una cosa tan masculina este acto de tomar. She said it is such a masculine thing, this act of taking. Ella dijo que solo, un, solo había una palabra en inglés para amor, pero hay muchas para robar. She said there is only one word in English for love, but there are many for theft. Ella dijo que está bien llorar simplemente no delante de ellos, nunca delante de ellos. She said it's okay to cry, just not in front of them. Never in front of them. Three. Ella dijo que se jodan. She said, fuck them. Ella dijo que no es un pecado maldecir. She said it is not a sin to curse. Ella dijo que solo puedes odiar y amar en el idioma que se te da. She said you can only hate and love in the language you are given. Thank you for listening to that one. I'm going to read um, three poems from my book, Arsonist, because it's its birthday. This book has been with me now two years. So happy birthday to this book. Uh, the third most beautiful thing I've ever done. Well, the fourth most beautiful thing I've ever done in my life. Right behind my two daughters at one and two. And one particular turnaround jump shot in a middle school basketball game at three. But I think this is my fourth beautiful thing that I've done in life. This is called Nova. By the way, this book is for my father, who I never met or didn't know, really. Nova. Snow. The day you are born. Such unusual weather for the desert you inherit, but you refuse to let this story begin with white. So you change it. Rain. The day you are born. Such unusual weather for the desert you inherit, your father stands outside the emergency room doors, a soft pack of camel straights in his hand, his swimming pool eyes a stark contrast to the gray sky above. No, there will be no white transitions in this story. His sunless eyes a stark contrast to traceries of Asia above. Your mother screams, pushes you into the world after 17 hours of labor. The nose and mouth are suctioned. You take your first breath, cry. Your father, silent as benzene, exhales white smoke through both nostrils. Stop. You will not allow intangible whiteness to appear in this story. Your father, silent as arsenic, exhales smoke more blue than one through both nostrils. She places the baby against her flesh. You refuse to latch. Exhausted, your mother rests from the pain of birth, closes her eyes. He places the key in ignition. It cranks, but refuses to start. Flooded, your father leans back on the headrest, closes his eyes. On the radio, Stuart begs Maggie to wait. With a furious rattle and hum, the big block V8 turns over. You cannot recall if the Chevy is pearl or silver. This is all a story whispered to you by an uncle who rises crudo and angry on Sunday mornings. Call the car black. Call the father back. Blue blanket, brown skin. No getting around those hospital walls. Anemic, bloodless, impossibly white. And this next poem is the poem that's on the adjacent page. And 
this book uh, came about uh, by finding out from a stranger who shared half of my blood that my father had died. And they sent me the obituary um, and I wasn't in it. I'd been written out of my father's death the way that I've been written out of his life. Um, so I rewrote it. So this is called The Breath of Our Disconnection or On Finding Out That I Was Left Out of My Father's Obituary. He is survived by sheet-soiled crimson, crumpled cold on hospital floor, survived by blood in lungs, throat, and mouth, hair and sink, by chemotherapy, by diagnosis, survived by pain in side and shortness of breath, by calloused hands, farm jack, come along, whirly jig. He is survived by new family and new priorities, by community college art classes, by not so brown boy, by the idea of beautiful brown woman. He is survived by pills of different colors and sizes, by PTSD, by Agent Orange. He is survived by severed limbs and whales of soldiers too young for death, by Ho Chi Minh City, unit, core, God, and country, act one of Hamlet, by paint by numbers, survived by amniotic fluid in lungs, throat, and mouth, by unbuckled belt and floral print dress, print dress on the floorboard of a Chevy, by young man and younger woman, swaying in time in small town Texas dance hall, he has survived, by I'm so lonesome, I could cry, playing on the jukebox. This is the last poem I'll read uh, uh, from Arsonist, and my last poem for this little five poem set that I did for you all. It's the shortest poem in, in the book, um, but it feels like the longest, you know? This is called For Better or Worse. Almost a year now, what I've learned is this. My dead father is not in the dirt, nor is he in the poems. He is in me. So thank you for listening tonight. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I know, me too. Me too, too. Like there was, there's so many, I know. like I had some questions prepared um, and there's so many more and you know, we could spend more time uh, talking about, but I, I just feel like there needs to be a moment of, right? I want to add to that moment of, <laughs> or if you can add to it, actually, can you tell us that, that story of how, arsonist came about because you were working on another manuscript weren't you uh yes yeah um i was i was working on these sort of long anthematic uh narrative pieces that you know were you know as much for the stage as for the page and um and when i went to my mfa program i was about a semester in and working on these really long things and uh the work was overwhelming like because uh, i was also working and writing and touring and teaching while trying to get an mfa and um, so I needed a break. So at the end of my first semester, my partner and I, uh, our neighbor, our next door neighbor is like a retired doctor. And he had a timeshare in Aspen. He said, you know, it's free. If you can get up there, you can have it for a week. And he's like, it's the nicest hotel you'll ever stay in. And I was like, you know, I've stayed in some, you know, pretty nice hotels. So we'll see about that. 
And sure enough, like it was the nicest hotel I've ever stayed at. <laughs> at nine o'clock, two women in like a full gown would knock on our doors and ask if they could tuck us into bed and they had hot like coffee and cookies or, or no milk and cookies. Every night at 9 p.m., two adult women asked if they could tuck us in. It was crazy. Anyway, I always turned down the tucking in, but I, I, you know, we would take the milk and cookies. So we're there in Aspen, and my partner's on her laptop, and I'm on my laptop, and we're like watching the snow fall on the trees as we're both kind of working. And my partner gets a, a, a Facebook message from someone she doesn't know, and she reads it, and her face just contorts into an expression I've never seen. And she's like, Joaquin, uh, this message isn't for me. This message is someone who recognized my last name as your last name, and they're trying to find you, and you need to read this. And the message was from um, a half-sister that I didn't know I had. And the message, uh, the Facebook message that she sent me is actually the epigraph that opens my book, and it reads, you don't know me, not really. And I hate to tell you like this, but my father, I mean, our father has died. Mm -hmm. Facebook message I received while writing these poems. We got back from Aspen and I came into my office and I had my manuscript tacked all over the walls because that's what our prophet Sherwin Bitsui had instructed us to do. And I came in and that message just kept running over my, playing over my head for like three or four days before we got back. And then when we got in, I just, uh, I pulled out my journal and I wrote down, how did your father's absence make you feel as a young person? Question mark. And the word on, uh, underneath it I wrote was degraded. And then I started weeping. And I, I, I took every poem that I had written for my, for my MFA creative manuscript and I just crumpled them and I pulled them off the walls and I collapsed on my floor and I wept. And I cried for my father, you know, maybe for the first time in my life. And I, when I got up, I looked back at the word degraded that I'd written down in my journal. So I pulled out my laptop and I typed in the word degraded into the search engine and just hit enter. And the first thing that came back was this scientific essay on causes of land degradation. And I read it from beginning to end. It was really interesting. And each, it was broken into like 10 parts and each part had like an all cap bolded word. Hmm. And so I thought to myself, what if I pulled that all cap bolded word out and laid it on a page and wrote something in 10 parts for my father? So I wrote this poem called Causes of Degradation. It's it's a sequence poem. It's 10 parts long and it's it's uh it's in the book and it was sort of the catalyst for what would become arsonist. So I started writing all these love poems uh, about a man I, you know, I didn't know. Um and so I ended up researching and finding out things about him, doing interviews and and uh trying to, you know, trying to go back and and and, and just piece piece them together from other people's stories and from old photos that I'd never seen that were sent my way. And um, so, yeah, um, when the book won uh, the Robert Dana Inga Prize for Poetry, it was actually entitled Causes of Degradation. That was the title of the book. But I was fighting that title since the beginning of, of the manuscript. I was really fighting that title. I don't know why, I just, I thought it was too long. I, it, it didn't seem right. Um, and I was thinking of, of the title arsonist a lot because there's a lot of fire imagery in the book. I always felt real burned by my father's absence. Mm. And it was a conversation I had with James Alunyota Stevens, who's just this beautiful poet who wrote Combing the Snakes from His Hair and so many other things. He was one of my profes at, at, during my MFA and, and he found out that I was thinking of changing the title. And James said to me, Joaquin, I heard you're thinking of changing your title of your manuscript from Causes of Degradation to Arsonist. And I said, yeah, I am. He said, you have to. And I said, why? And he goes, 
Don't you understand? All these poems are about you and your father. And the word arsonist has the word son in the middle of it. And it also contains the sentence, our son is, inside that one word. And when he said that to me, I was like, <laughs> I just had the same moment. I was like, what? <laughs> like, that's why you're a, you know, a brilliant published I mean, profe who's read in Egypt and, uh, you know, and I'm, you know, a slam poet trying to get an MFA. Um, but yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's, this is, I think it's the best work I've ever done. And uh, in terms of work, in terms of poetry. Mm. So let's talk about then the flip side of that, because you, you alluded to it while you were reading your poetry, that uh, your new manuscript that you're working on is about the opposite side of that. You grew up without your father, but you were surrounded by these amazing brown women, you know, that raised you, that set examples, you know, like, I, I really want to know about this Hellraiser Abuelita that <laughs> and why you call her that. Uh, but let's, I, I want to know about the women in your life. And Absolutely. Um, my mother, my mother had me when she was very young. My mother was 17 years old when she had me, but she was, I think she was younger and more beautiful and more rebellious and more wild than most 17 year olds can be. <laughs> at that age. So she was, my mother was out in the streets a lot, you know, busy being, you know, wild and rebellious and beautiful. Uh, so she wasn't around a lot when I was a young person. My father wasn't around period. Uh, he was sort of left the year of my birth and never came back. So when this happens in the body, you both know that, you know, when, you're, when your father will not and your mother cannot, you know, take care of you, your abuelitos sometimes step in. So I was actually raised by my grandparents um, and my, my abuelita Juanita was such a large influence in my life, despite the fact that she was only with me uh, for, you know, um, like seven, eight, eight years, you know? She passed when I was very, very young, but the stories of her live on, you know? And all the tios and tias would tell me those stories, but even beyond that, I just remember her so vividly. Um, I remember everything about my abuelita, because. Uh, maybe like your, you know, like your grandmother's like, my abuelita was always cooking. Like, the, like La Cocina was her realm. You know, like all my memories of my grandmother are cooking. And and, and like, uh, you know, tortillas was a big player in our life. And like, for those who's never, for those who've never made it like by hand, like it's messy, you know, it's like, it's powdery. <laughs> you know? And I remember my tío Salazino said to me one time when I was like a mocoso, he said, you know, I hope the cops never bust in here. It was like a coca factory in here, you know? <laughs> I didn't get the joke then, but like I get it now, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but another thing about my abuelita was uh, she was she was a she was a Catholic. She was not a devout Catholic like my, my abuelo, you know? She, she had her vices and, and she didn't care about, you know, anyone knowing about her vices, you know? Like my abuelito did not, my, my abuelo didn't drink my my abuelita did, you know, and she didn't care if you knew it. And my abuelita, my abuelo would never curse ever. And my abuelita cursed all the time <laughs> in Spanish, always at us, her family. Like that's how she loved us, you know. Um, but despite like those vices, she also made the sign of the cross like a hundred times a day, like for anything. She would like I remember her saying to me like, "Mijo, grab the forks," and she would do the sign of the cross. And I always I was a smart ass at like seven. So I'd be like, I will, I got the forks, you know, you don't have to bring God into this, you know, let him take care of the tornadoes. I got this, you know, <laughs> and she would like me on the back of the head. Um, but because she was constantly making the sign of the cross on her bodice and because she was constantly making tortillas or cooking with flour, 
we always had these white dots on her from the flower. So it's like, this is what I lived with. I, you know, I, I was raised with like this living, breathing poem that was my abuelita, you know? Mm. And I, you know, in the past, because she passed when I was, when I was young, you know, I, I write a lot about my formative years and, you know, uh, you know, in middle school and, and in high school and uh, those years when my, my grandfather was with me before he passed uh, due to a tragic car accident. Um, uh, so, so I, I want to write about the women. I, I want to bring those stories to the forefront uh, because they need to be told and they're sacred. They are. Now you mentioned the 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 tortillas and the and your abuelita in the kitchen all the time, and I've made it a point. Uh, we we are celebrating Latinx uh, Heritage Month, and we've got people from all different types of cultural backgrounds uh, with that bring their own cultural uh, dishes. What is your favorite dish from your cultura? Look, Eddie, Eddie Hard is hitters. Eddie's <laughs> because he's the taco poet. Look, uh, <laughs> you know, so I'm, ta I'm talking to the expert here. Um, you know, all food is, is delicious. I, I'm a, like, I didn't have a lot of food as a young person. So I love food. Like I eat lots of food because there was a big chunk of my life when I didn't get to eat a lot. And so like, uh, I love food, but I, you know, I will say, I will, you know, my Kung Fu is not very strong, but I will fight anyone who says that the taco is not the greatest invention in the history of womankind and mankind and humankind. Because like, it's like maybe like taco and then like indoor toilet. <laughs> I don't know, but like taco is like, it's, you, man, it's perfect. It, it's absolutely perfect. It's, you can hold it in your hand, you can go, like you can walk and eat, you know? You can like, you know, you sit down and enjoy it. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's the best, it, it, you know, and, and for me, like I'm, I'm watching the, these incredible documentaries now on Netflix, like uh, one's called the Taco Chronicles and like, oh it, yes, activated by this show. And I love it so much, but like, I'm going to be real with you. Cause like when I was a young, like when I was a Mocoso, we had two tacos in the house. Like we had one of two tacos was the tacos we were going to consume. Right. And one was taco de frioles, like a, a tortilla with beans. Like that was the taco. Cheese, are you kidding me? Cheese costs money. Get out of here with that mess. <laughs> um, so like we had the, the taco de frioles and then we had the picadillo. And picadillo, it's different everywhere. Some people put peas in it and like corn. I know, what? You know, no. so like, you know, picadillo for us was, it was ground beef with seasonings and onion mm -hmm. and potato. And like that was it. Yeah. And like to this day, like like to this day, I I still think picadillo is the greatest taco ever, like in, in the history of ever. You know, I, I don't think I had a, like a, a, a fancy ass taco. Like I don't think I had like a, a pajita taco till I was like twenty, and I was like, what? Fake <laughs> in taco like asada in a taco? Like I didn't even know that existed. Because I grew up on violas and tortillas and picadillo and tortillas, but yeah, you can't, you know. Oh man, I love yeah. my I love my people from all these different cultures. I love the food they bring to us, and I appreciate it. I honor it. But yeah, you know, tacos. You're not going to be the taco. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. you now. Well, uh, there are two questions. One, it sounds like the the style of tortillas that your abuelita was making 
were the kind where they're still a little dusty on the outside. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's, that's all, that seems to be your nostalgic favorite. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And also so sometimes like, when they would probably and like you know the little black charred spots and and sometimes they would puff up and like you like you poke the little you pop the little puppy. Oh man, so <laughs> so good. But you know what it means when it puffs up, though, right? What what is that? Is it good luck? Yeah, I mean, well, it means your sweat is gonna like you. Ah, <laughs> yes. Is it true? Is it true? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I've noticed like uh, some people are really nostalgic for the for that flowery tortilla, flour tortilla, but the real powdery on the outside. Um, and then myself, my mom never, my mom's were smooth. Mm. So when I saw the powdery ones, I was like, what is this? You know? mm. And as I've gotten older and and seen a lot more, I realized that you know everybody else has their own sense of nostalgia and sense of you know it, and, and there's different regions. Laredo tortillas are different from Valley tortillas, from San Antonio tortillas, from Dallas and Houston tortillas. Mm -hmm. But here's the real question: is because you you went to school in Santa Fe, right? Yeah. So why are the New Mexico tortillas, New Mexico tacos, not as good as, as the Texas ones? That's the question. <laughs> you know, I you know I hate talking smack about my, my beautiful home <laughs> of New Mexico. All right, all right, all right. Just make a comparison. I will. I will. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know they, they they love their red chili and their green chili from where is it Hatch, New Mexico, and it's great. I love it too. Uh, you know, but when it comes down to it, like it's, I don't know. It's like. Um, there's some kind of like a Spanish flair, you know, to their to their tacos and to their food. And like, I don't know if you've ever been to like uh, like certain parts of New Mexico where there's people called Norteños. Have you heard of these people like Norteños? Like they're super proud of their Spanish heritage. Mm. And like you look at one and like they look like a Mayan. They look like an Aztec. Right? <laughs> they, look, they look like Mexico. Like you look like Mexico. Uh -huh. Like they are not Mexican. They are they are not from Mexico. They don't their people are from Spain. And like they're European, you know, and and like you know, Spanish. What? No. And I think that that, that Norteño little little conflict that internal conflict they have it's it, sometimes it's, it makes its way into their food i don't know maybe, <laughs> maybe. i mean right, I this in mexico is kind of in case you're in new mexico watching this <laughs> no eddie i want to ask you since you're the taco poet like what's the best taco in your mind like what is what oh, is oh yeah no i have an answer for you there you was got a, taco war. You got a taco what is it no but there was a taco war some like two years ago three years ago between mainly austin san antonio and I had to use, I had to write about that. I had to put that in my blog. And I, the answer is that the best taco in Texas as is with your abuela, with your tia, with whatever whomever it was that shared that first taco with you or that consistent taco with you. Um, that's where that's where the best one is for you. I'm not. I don't think that it's fair to say um, that one is better than the other. A region is better than the other. We all grew up with different. There, there are just so many good things about each region so that add to that taco. Like you're talking about your picadillo, like my picadillo taco, it, my grandmother would make it with like minced meat instead of ground beef. Mm. And it was, and that's how I thought it was supposed to be. And then I come to San Antonio and everybody's using ground beef. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because yeah. there, there are tacos. And then as Deep so kindly put it when she was on this show, there are tortilla sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not a taco. 
Which there, there's, yeah, so, I want to ask you, Chibi, like, like, I know you're a fan of brown drink. Like, you, you like a nice cocktail. So you, if you have a fantastic cocktail, what item is like, this is the best thing that anyone could ever consume? Like, what's, what's the dish of choice for you? And as, as it pertains to drinks? And no, like you have your drink. Oh, you know, okay. <laughs> yeah. like, you I was going to say, I don't make it on You pair with your wine, with your cocktail, <laughs> with your, you know, you've got your dream meal in front of you. What are you, what are you consuming with for what's delicious to you? I mean, I was going to say like, I don't do make cocktails. I do straight tequila. All right. <laughs> um, but I think anybody that, that has been around me and knows me in my cooking for a while, like I am 100% all in when it comes to this traditional Jalisco dish, carne and jugo. It, it is, you can't go wrong. I love it. And it is so local to like where my family's from to where like people don't have never experienced it. And then I bring it and they're like, oh my God. It's just, it's just, it's just, and it's so simple, right? It's just beef, bacon, beans, tomatillos, serranos. That's it. And, and you're, you're keeping that tradition alive. You're like, I love that. I love mm -hmm. it. So, yeah. Food no, is one of those things that transcends. I think it – okay, let me let me write this. It transcends region in that it can be global, but it is best when eaten in the region where it's from because you can't fake. You can't replicate or duplicate local herbs, local fruits and vegetables, local – soil like there's something about like getting sourcing your food from where you're living without question very yeah. true now i don't know i don't i don't know how serious this question is going to be um because we're kind of pivoting but it kind of this this conversation is kind of getting me there um it is hispanic history month or latinx history month um and you yourself you're talking about your mexican heritage how do you identify and has that label changed over the years oh, that's a fantastic question um i do a lot of touring so i get to go you know b before the world became what it is today you know i i got to tour you know the country uh and the world but in particular the country and over the last you know handful of years I've, I've been able to be around young people who are the reason that woke exists <laughs> like it's not, it's not anything weird do, like we didn't do it like they did like they created woke and 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 you know and i'm so proud and happy that they did uh but i remember because like you know when i get asked a lot like what are you like because i come from these like i come from my abuelo and my abuelita who were like these catholics and who you know took me to church on tuesday and wednesday and saturday and sunday right so there's there's that whole you know christ thing going on over there but I'm also from my tias and tios and my tias and tios would tell me stories of like, uh, you know, like Aztec gods. And, mm -hmm. and so like, I, you know, I'm also like that. So I'm like this, you know, I'm not, you know, so I have these two different, like this duality that makes me up. And like, I remember my, my abuelo would, would always say, you know, Mexican American. And I even think I heard him say Hispanic a couple of times, but I think his default was Mexican American. Whereas like my tios and tias were always like Chicano. Chicana, you know, that's what we are, right? And then, you know, we got we got the X, which was really thrilling to me. Um, and I really love, I, you know, I really embraced the word, you know, the, the X, the, the Chicana X, the Latin X, you know, I think that's a beautiful thing. 
but I had a conversation with someone from Mexico and uh, about, about the term uh, Latinx. And what they said to me was really insightful. So I took what they said and I introduced myself that way at a reading at a university. Uh, I, you know, I said, you know, my name is Joaquin Cehuataneo. I come from Dallas, Texas. I'm gonna be reading poems to you all for about an hour. And uh, since it is the month that it is, I wanna say I'm very proud to be Latinx. And I said, Latinx is what I said, right? And I got confronted after the reading by a handful of young Latinx women who took issue uh, that I had called myself Latinx. Uh, they did not like that mm -hmm. at all because Latinx was a term that they created, that, that, that their generation brought to the forefront. And by de-anglicizing it, you know? Because like every syllable is wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm just like, like every <laughs> syllable in Latinx is actually wrong. It's like, you know, there's nothing Latin about Latin and there's nothing Latino or Latina or Latin, Latin, Latinx about X. Mm. You know, so uh, I, you know, I tried to explain to them that like what they're doing by naming themselves is sacred, that no one can name you but you, you know, you are who you are. Um, but I have the right to do that, too. You know, and I feel like uh, no one can call me what I am but me. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I at that moment, in that living, breathing moment, I was feeling very Latinx, I was. And uh, even after we had this, you know, like two or three minute, four minute conversation, uh, they, they you know, it kind of ended with them like, all right, you know, and then like turn around walking <laughs> off. Like, like no resolution was, was gotten, but uh, I don't know. So like when people ask me now, you know, I, you know, I'm different things on different days, but like, you know, mm -hmm. some days I, you know, I'm Latinx cause you know, I just, you know, I love the young people and I love them being woke and I love them creating this thing for all of us. Some days I do feel Latinx and, you know, and I'm that. And then some days I'm Chicanx because, you know, I feel that too. So I'm just, I guess I'm different things on different days. Like, I feel like I carry people with me. So like if I have my tias and tios with me, I, now I'm probably Chicanx. But, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, if I'm just, you know, on my own, you know, I'm either Latinx or Latinx, one or the other. Mm. I love that. And it is that idea. I think whenever we confront this question, it's like you have the freedom to choose how you identify, yeah. right? And and can't nobody put a label on you. you know? um, but speaking of labels, uh, one of the labels that you've carried for a while is Slam Poet, right? Mm -hmm. um, I and think you, I've- You both as well. Like I'm, I'm talking not only with page poets, but performance poets as well. So it's thrilling to be here. Yes, yes. One of us falls on one, we definitely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are stronger in one or the other. Um, but you, I think my first exposure to you was probably circa 2006. Uh, it was, I think, at the Scoot Inn in Austin, Texas, and you and Natasha Carisosa were doing like this double tour. You had these books that you put out together, which which I have and I've shared with my family. Um, and that was my first exposure to, to you and kind of like as I was getting into the slam world. So I'm curious, before we talk about the present and the future, what got you into poetry? How did you find your way into this world? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, 
my my willow used to mow yards in like far off foreign suburbs that I didn't know even know existed because like we lived in Barrio East Side, which is in the shadows of downtown Dallas. And like I had never been, like I had never been out of it. My whole, like my whole youth, I had never been out of like my barrio. Mm -hmm. But my grandfather would journey these far off foreign places like Garland, Texas, and Mesquite, Texas, to look for work. And the people there mystified him because they take things and put them on the curb they no longer wanted. <laughs> so he would snatch those things up and put them in the back of the truck and bring them home for us. And one of the things he would bring is like, like in those suburbs back when I was in Mocoso, they had like recycling bins. Like there are parts of Dallas today that don't have recycling bins, and um. And so like when their paper, their newspaper and, and paper and cardboard would fill up, they put boxes of books just like out on the curb beside the recycling bin. And like that was his most, you know, sought after treasure. You know, he never used the word basura for, for books. It was always, you know, tercero, treasure. And he'd bring these books home and then they'd store them on this little two-tier shelf in the sala. That he, he found that shelf on the side of the road so it had a gangster lean, you know. The only thing that <laughs> was the weight of the word upon it. And uh, and even though like I like I come, I, my, 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 my abuelito is, uh, they had like uh, five, uh, five boys and five girls. So, like I come from a really big family, and you know how it is when you come from, you know, a Latinx family. That uh, if anyone falls on hard times, they come back, and there's always room for more. Uh, so there was always a lot of us in the house because like everyone was always on hard times, you know. Um, but even though there was a lot of us in the house, only one person had to read the books that my grandfather brought home in that entire house, and that one person was me. My grandfather made me read them out loud to him in English to practice my English because he would always tell me in Spanish, you know, like practice your English because English is going to be a way to education for you. And so uh, the rule was I would read in in English to my grandfather and then he would critique me in Spanish. <laughs> and when whenever people like don't know what the word critique means, it means yell at you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> So I remember one night I was reading like from a Norton anthology to my grandfather and I was reading this poem and I think it was by Blake and it was like about this, you know, this grandfatherly figure, this abuelo and, 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 this, and the child walking uh, along this river. And I, it, it was a beautiful poem. And I remember like my, my grandfather like wiped away a tear and I was like, that's it. Like, that's it. Like, I don't care what has to happen, but I'm going to write words on the paper. When I grow up, I'm gonna make money by by making people wipe away tears mm. because they've read something or, or heard something. Uh, and like I remember, like the like, like I was like eight when I said that to the universe, you know. So I started writing poems like when I was in Mocoso, and then in middle school I found like creative writing and like literary magazine, and and, and then I found them in high school and like you know people like like. Like theater geeks are like the lowest of no, not at all. Like there's the creative writing crew way below. <laughs> so we were like the nerdy, you know, Latinx black white kid who were like it was like four of us, I think maybe five of us, and and we were gonna change the world with poetry and and um, and I don't know if we we have yet or not, but you know, I think we're all still trying. Mm -hmm. so, and and I you know for years I thought poetry was like I write it for me. Maybe I read it to one other person and then I send it away somewhere to maybe, maybe it gets picked up and, and someone will read it. Like, I thought that's how poetry worked from like up until like, even when I was in college. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I found creative writing in, in high school and college. I didn't find slam in high school and college, uh, but I got turned on to the work of, of great poets. And I, I and uh, so like, I remember I was taking a, a college freshman class during undergrad and we were reading some Amiri Baraka. And I found out that Amiri Brock was going to come to Dallas in like three weeks and read. 
at Sankofa, Sankofa Cafe in, in the South Side, in sunny South, sunny South Dallas. And I was like, I'm going, you know, I, I'm going to go. And so I went and uh, and it was supposed to start at eight. And then they said it was going to start at 10. <laughs> and then the first poet took the stage at 11. And like, I got there at 745. <laughs> That's how you know you were new. <laughs> they said, uh, before Mary Baraka takes the stage, we're going to have some local uh, slam poets perform for y'all. And I was like, what the? I didn't come to see like local schmokel whatever. Like I came to see a Mary Braga, this bull. And then like a poet came out and read a poem that I thought was, you know, pretty entertaining and funny. And then another poet came out and read something that I thought was, you know, that's that's pretty good. That's that's not too bad. But then uh after a couple of more but like the last poet who came out before a Mary Braga was this poet named Gino. It's Jonathan Gino White, who's on faculty at UTD, and he was my first uh, you know, my first uh, you know, coach when I was on a slam team for Dallas. Uh, Gino came out and did a poem called Street Poet. And it's like, it was, the, it was like the coolest shit I'd ever seen in my entire life. Mm-hmm. It was dope. It was powerful. I mean, like, it's just, it's, it's an amazing poem. And like, I, if that poem wasn't coming from his voice and his body, and if I just saw it on a page, I think it was thrilling. I think it was electric. And, but like the fact that it was coming from his face and his body and his voice. Cause like, there's so many things I think that go into making like a really great slam poet. And one of the things that people always take for granted is the voice. Cause like, sometimes like someone's voice is like, Oh my God, you know, it's like, it's <laughs> a great poem, but like your voice is driving me crazy. But like, you know, has like the voice, like it's the voice. I mean, it's like the prototype for voices for slam. It's just like, it's like, it's like, molasses drip i don't know how to describe it it's just it's perfect mm. so uh so i got to see this sort of perfect performance and like i remember after amiri baraka read and like amiri baraka was like at the time was like 77 and like came out with like this walking stick and was like slamming it down as he was spinning his piece and like knocked the microphone over and was just like using his like it's like it was like what like you know i can't <laughs> do that and here's a 77 year old man who like rocks this like the, the probably 50 people could fit in that COVID K. There were probably 200 people like crammed in there. Um, and I was like, who's this 77 year old, brilliant, breathtaking elder, just like rocking out. I remember I bought a chat book from Amiri Baraka that night. And he said, can I sign it to you young man? And I said, yes, please. And he's like, what's your name? I said, my name's Joaquin. And he goes, shit, like Corky Gonzalez. Look at you, man. <laughs> and he signed it. He signed, like when he signed it to me, he's like, uh, 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 Corky, uh, Joaquin, Hellraisers for Live, Poets. Like, he signed this beautiful thing to me about like Corky Gonzalez and me at the like, it was like, what? How did this happen to me? But like, after seeing Gino perform that night, I went up to him and I said, like, like Do you do this a lot? Like, how do you, how do you get so good? And he said, You know, you just come to the slam and check us out. So I didn't know what that was. So, like, you no, know, when I went to the slam, like I thought it was an open mic. I didn't know what the word slam meant, you know? So I went, you know, I had my like my my journal, and I was ready to read off the page, you know, because I didn't have anything memorized. And when I walked in, I was like, what the shit? Hell, no, hell to the no. I like, I scratched my name out. <laughs> First time I ever signed up for, I chickened out. And then I went back the following week and I signed in again because I kind of saw what was going on. I was like, man, let me try and memorize one of these poems of mine, you know? uh kind of saw what was going on and then i was too nervous to, so i took the page up there with me you know for the first round and by the way that first round my first time that i competed in 
I had chickened out again. I scratched my name out again. Um, but I'd made the mistake of meeting the host the week before. Yeah. Rock baby. And Rock had saw like we had talked to each other the week before. So that Friday, the next Friday, when he when he met when he, he's like, hey, isn't your name Joe Quinn? I was like, no, 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 it's it, it's Joaquin. <laughs> oh, my, my bad. He goes, I, I just I wanted to I saw your name on the list last week, and then like I saw it again tonight, like both times. It was like scratched out. Like, are you gonna spit anything tonight? And I was like, no, nah, man, I'm a teacher, man. I got that sore teacher voice. I can't really spit pure fire tonight. <laughs> and he said, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So that night, Rock was like, y'all welcome to the poetry slam. We get ready to do this thing. When I say poetry, you say slam. Welcome my first poet to the stage, my homeboy from seven days ago. Don't get it twisted, y'all. It ain't Joe Quinn. You better get it right. Y'all welcome Joaquin. Like, I got bullied into my first damn poetry slam. <laughs> But I ended up winning that round. Like I won, I got the highest score in the first round, and I and I made it to the second round. And I, you know, I was like half on page and half off page with everything I was reading that night. So I like had paper in my hand, and ended up winning the second round too, the highest score that round. So I made it to the third round, and in the third round, I read another poem, and I I was competing against like someone who's been on HBO's Depp Poetry Jam in that third round, and like like was had no paper in their hand, and was just like yeah, like going all in, like. And here I am, like just reading this poem that I had that was really new at the time. And I, I won that round too. Like I won the first slam that I ever entered. Man, like I was like, that was it. Like this is my religion. This is my everything. Like whatever, whatever I can do to make sure I'm here. I'm and so like I went back the next Friday, that set the next seven Fridays in a row, I won. I won the first eight poetry slams that I ever entered. Mm. And and then I was like, when I lost like that ninth week, I was like. I gotta get better. I gotta get stronger. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta do this, you know. Because I didn't realize, like, like when I won the first time, like, Rock, I was just walking out like glowing, and Rock tapped me on my shoulder. He's like, "Joaquin, hold up, you forgot your prize." And I was like, "Prize? <laughs> prize? Like, what?" And he's like, "Yeah." And he handed me the envelope. And at that time, the prize for first place was fifty dollars. I was like, "That's a lot of tacos." You know, like, with fifty dollars. And what's really funny is like at the end of that eight weeks, like Rock came up to me. Then we, we were like two months into this process of me starting to slam and Rock came up to me and he's like, you know, Joaquin, you're pretty good. <laughs> and I said, thank you for saying that. That means the world to me. I said, why do you say that? He goes, let me tell you why I think you're pretty good. When you first walked in here eight weeks ago and won that first slam, everybody was like, who is that awesome Mexican dude? <laughs> He's like, but now you've been taking their taco money for eight weeks. They ain't got no taco money, homie. They're waiting on you now. Now you walk in there like, damn. Mexican dude. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and that's how you know you're doing good. If you, you know, if, if Slam is hating on you, you're doing the right thing. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the rest is history because from there you went on uh, national individual champion, you know, like multi published author, like clearly. Uh, this 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 world this genre has 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 been good to you, and you have done good in it. Um, before we talk about where you're at now these days, so talk a little bit about the scene. You know, because you started in Slam, what like oh yeah, was, a, a while ago. It was, it was a long while. Ago. <laughs> we, oh, don't wanna, we don't want to we don't want to date I, you. Yeah, I walked in those doors in 04. and okay. uh, and like. To, to be where I'm from, like, because, uh, um, you know, a lot of people say that, like, Charlotte was the first team from the South to win the national poetry. Like, everyone forgets, like, you know, 
I think San Antonio tied one year and then like Dallas won. 1999. You know? <laughs> so like Dallas won in 2000 in San Antonio. So like, you know, like, I don't know if we're the South and like, I don't, like South doesn't want Texas and like the Southwest doesn't want Texas. Like, I still feel like we're in the Southern part, you know, of like, if you draw that line, like we're down there, we're lower, you know? Um, but yeah, so to walk into a place with such a rich, rich mm-hmm. history, um, like, you know, I, it was, it was such a great place to walk into. And what I loved about our scene when I walked into it was we had, uh, we had like cowboy poets coming from Farmersville, Texas. Mm. And we had like lesbian and gay and transgender poets coming from like this area in Dallas called Oak Lawn. And we had, you know, a Latinx poet like myself coming from East Dallas. And we had Gino and Rock coming from Oak Cliff in South Dallas. And we had, uh, we just had so many different kinds of people Mm-hmm. It really, I think, didn't have a lot in common except we love poetry, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it was it was thrilling to be a part of that, and because I think Dallas is, I don't know how San Antonio is, but Dallas is a very segregated city. Like mm-hmm. it has it has so many different cultures, but they don't cross pollinate, you know. Like like South Oak Cliff stays with South Oak Cliff, and like Barrio Eastside stays with Barrio Eastside, and Arcadia Park stays with Arcadia Park. And like you have this Boricua neighborhood that doesn't really mix with this, you know, this Latinx neighborhood, this Mexican American neighborhood, and you have this African American neighborhood, this black neighborhood that doesn't really mix with this white neighborhood. And like the slam, like all those places were coming together. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just beautiful. Like it was to me, it was like everything that could be right with Dallas was happening in our little, in our little beautiful scene. Yeah. Um, so how do you see the Texas slam scene now versus how it was then? That's a great question, I, and I don't, I don't get to slam much anymore because of life, because of because of work. Um, like, really, for me, like more than anything, like I, I had thrown myself into for a good six years the youth slam movement. Um, I, you know, I remember, you know, so many times in Dallas, I had adults come up to me and say, Joaquin, you know, you should run a youth poetry slam in Dallas and take the kids to BNV. And like, I would always think to myself, like, you're a grown ass adult. Like, you know, like, you're asking me to do something, but like, you know what? Like, you got two legs and two arms, and you're passionate, and you know, you got a brain. Like, you do it. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, why should I? You know, here's this adult asking me to do something. Like, you know, go do it yourself. You know. Um, but then, like, a young high school student came up to me and said to me, you know, Joaquin, we don't have a, a youth slam scene, and Fort Worth does, and I've been going over there, but it's like 38 miles from Dallas, and. I think it'd be great if we had something here in Dallas and if you could help sponsor it, help create it. And but when a young person asks me something, like I'm gonna listen. Because like that's that's a 14-year-old who doesn't have the resources that like a 32-year-old who's asking me to do something d- does. So so when this young woman asked me to to do that, you know, I, I just threw myself into it. And I will say about like the youth slam scene when I was a part of it, and this was you know probably four or five years ago when I stepped away and handed it off to other stronger, smarter poets to to take over. Um, you know, I think it was, it was in a good place. It just wasn't in a great place. Like for instance, um, we, we, you know, when we would go to the Brave New Voices, you know, the International Youth Poetry Festival and Championship, I just felt like I was seeing a lot of young people on stages doing things they weren't emotionally ready to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just, I don't want to see a 15 year old young woman faint at the end of a poem because it's so emotional that it causes them to literally black out on a stage and have to be 
carried off and have to have like an emergency medical responder called for them. Like I, I like I was seeing a lot of that, and that was really disheartening, you know, from a youth perspective. But uh, as far as the adult perspective, like I, like when I look on social media now, like in the Dallas scene, we we still have a couple of things going on. Of course, we have the slam, and we have you know some other readings. But now, like I feel like there's been a turn, and I and I feel like even the poetry scene has become sort of segregated, you know. I feel like we have like sort of a you know a gay, lesbian, transgender, queer movement, and then we have like this black movement, and then we have like this white kind of literary page thing, and then we have you know cowboy poets or whatever. Like, and I don't feel there's like as much cross pollination. Mm. I'm speaking of Dallas, not of, of any place else but Dallas, because I you know I don't know San Antonio and I don't know Austin, uh, but I just I feel like it's not as interconnected as it once was, and that's. When I, when I, you know, that's a little disheartening. Mm. Now you how, went. How is, it, how is the scene in San Antonio? Tell me about the slam scene. Is it thriving? Is it good? I mean, not. I mean, we're all in this weird place now. But like, before, <laughs> before was it? And and what do you think of it? I think it's pretty. I think we we have cross pollination and diversity. Good. Um, I, I do in, in our and uh, I'd say there's something for everyone. You know, in our San Antonio poetry mm. scene, you've got different readings around town um one slam right uh two kind of uh and then different different styles of reading you know you you've been to sun poets i've seen you feature there um with with rod and and them um and and that's a very welcoming scene not say that the other scenes aren't welcoming mm -hmm. but then that blah poetry spot it's a scene where it's like definitely for stage you're not sitting down reading you know um and and then there's like these other coffee shops or bookstores having their 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 kind of readings more of like a, a page mm -hmm. uh, page circle. And you have poets going to to various things like that. And there's there is a little bit of of crossover here and there, and it's yeah. whatever each poet is comfortable with, really. Yeah, you find your little niche. Can I ask you all a follow up question? Because sure, it's your interview now. Yeah, go ahead. We're interviewing you, sir. But okay. <laughs> oh. I really want to know about this because, like, I slammed a long time ago, right? And like, when I first like was getting into it, they were like, "Dude, be careful if you go feature in San Antonio." <laughs> <laughs> they got this this place like Sam's Burger Joint. Mm -hmm. and like, Those were the days. If you ain't fire, like they will straight up boo you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, like, I went. And like, I saw someone get booed and like, my heart broke for them. I was like, oh my God, that boy that boy just got booed like savagely. So like, I made sure like whenever I went to San Antonio, I was like, I'm like, I'm going all in. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going in for these people. Is it is, is there a place somewhere in San Antonio that still has that sort of fiery spirit of you better bring it or we're gonna let you know you, you didn't bring it? So that is uh, Budo Slam. It's, it's basically the only slam in San Antonio. Uh, and it's often been referred to as the Heckle Dome. Uh, that started in, in Sam's Burger Joint. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say it's as savage as it was 15 years ago, because I went to Sam's, it's savage. Um, but there is still, at least there was before six months ago, um, this punk rock mentality to it. You're in a bar. It's 11 o'clock at night. Half oh. the people in there 
don't give a shit about slam. They're just here because this is their favorite bar to go to. So yeah, you want to get the audience to shut up and listen to your poem. You got to make them shut up and listen to your poem. Oh yeah. Right? Nobody says respect the mic. Nobody. No. <laughs> and this is why this is we. Well, we get used to that. We get used to having to do that and used to talking over whatever's like going on at the bar and the balls hidden at the pool table. We get used to that. And then we get to like somewhere else and we go read somewhere else. And people are going to respect the mic, and we're like, they're like, shh. <laughs> and I'm like, you shh. <laughs> I remember one time we were at the National Poetry Slam, and Gino was our coach, and he said to me, um, he said, uh, this was something they used to say about Dallas, and they're still going to say it about Dallas. Uh, you may not understand what they're saying, but you are definitely going to hear them because they're loud. And like the reason was, was back then we were in this place called the Art Bar, which was this it was a bar inside a larger facility that was like five bars. So we were in one of the bars and our bar, the art bar backed up to the to club Clearview, which was the main room. And our slam started at 10 and the band went on at 11. <laughs> and like Clearview was that it was like a rock joint. Like it was either heavy metal or rock. So like in the second round and in the last round, like people would, have to like bring like you couldn't do like a sad poem about your dad dying or whatever like you had to like bring fire because that's how you were heard mm -hmm. and like we sort of i think for the longest time dallas had it and maybe san antonio the same way had it sort of don't i'm not even gonna get into the corova days <laughs> <laughs> we have people playing above us in the the, the stage the, the the we were in the basement and then there was a club above us and they were they had a band going and they had and it was a punk rock club so yeah, I love it. So, that was that was a different times. I will say this, this is what we still do. We might not we still do a little bit of the heckling. Uh, usually it's we heckle each other because we know each other. Yeah. Uh, but if you do suck, we will car wash clap you. <laughs> oh yeah. And oh, that, yeah. that still happens. Um and, and I will say this, that spirit's still alive. Um we had a when AWP was in San Antonio, yeah. we had a reading at um at, at one of the uh, a bar we we uh, we have our readings at for Blah Poetry Spot, and there was a nationally recognized poet up there that mm -hmm. whose poetry some of us Poodle people were not totally appreciating, and uh, we were this close to doing a car wash clap for this like very. <laughs> very <laughs> it didn't have. Poets. It was close. It was close. It was close, and it was only like out of respect for the venue and for. For uh, you know, the for our we had invited, <laughs> we invited these people. That, um, yeah, and and I even turned to Rooster. I'm like, hey, can we count? What? And he's like, no. And I remember <laughs> he usually is like all in for stuff like this, and he's like, yeah. no, not tonight, not tonight. My favorite little moment was when one poet was up there, and he it was just bad, and so the car wash clap started. We're just, <laughs> and he decided that. That is a motherfucking beat. Oh I'm no! Gonna no, no. to the motherfucking beat. Oh, no. <laughs> and he just kept going. I was like, "That's probably the most brutal thing you could have done." Go for it, bro. <laughs> now, now, Joaquin, you went from slam into an MFA program. Did your classmates know about your success in slam? Well, you know, it's funny. My classmates did not, but the profes did. Mm. And I remember when I walked. I was literally walking on the campus for day one for my first experience in Santa Fe, day one of my MFA. And here comes John Davis, who was the, at that time was the creative director.
for the entire program. And uh, John Davis is like, he's like the modern master of prose poetry. Like you, you could you know, teach a master class for months on what is a prose poem and how to do it perfectly. So like, I'm like starstruck. So here's John Davis walking toward me and, uh, and he stops me and he goes, Joaquin. And I said, yeah, you're, you're John Davis. It's, it's so great to, to meet you. I love your work and uh, thank you for, for all you're doing for the program. And he went, huh, our first slam poet. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I've had some experience in slam. And he goes, you know, I thought it'd be Hakeem Bellamy. Welcome. And he walked off, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, like, I walked past him. And I can see, like, like up ahead, I can see Sherwin Bitsui and Orlando White and Joan W. Kane, like, smoking cigarettes outside in the fall. And it's cold. And they're outside smoking cigarettes. And, like, these are, like, like I love these poets. Like, they're legends. And especially Sherwin Bitsui. And, and I'm walking toward them because I need to ask where this building is. So I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I know you're Sherwin Bitsui. Like, I'm a huge fan of your work. But I just had a question for you. Um, you know, where is, I was asking where a building was and Sherwin was smoking and he's like, Hey, he's famous. <laughs> he's got a lot of YouTube likes. <laughs> I'm like, shit. You know, like I just got here. Like I've been here like 45 seconds and I, you know, I'm labeled the slam poet, but, uh, so but that was, like, there too. I think the faculty, you know, knew of me, but like, all of my, my cohort was just, they, you know, they were they were so just wonderful. And like, I think the eight poets that I ended up being this cohort with was, you know, I couldn't have asked for stronger poets to, to go through this thing, think this two year thing we were gonna do together. And uh, and like like one of the one of the members of the cohort, Michelson Stone Sweat Knapp, who teaches who professes in California, like like is such a big part of arsonist because you know we had to get feedback on every poem from everyone we workshopped all you know all all, all four semesters it was a the bulk of it was workshopping so you know i owe them my cohort and the professors just a, a world of gratitude because um so much of their feedback found its way into the book mm. and now you i mean you have always been mentoring youth, you know, and in some way teaching the next generation. Uh, you are now teaching, teaching, uh, and in this kind of weird space, this liminal space that we're in. Um, how is how has that been going? You know, like teaching and mentoring, and still working with the youth, but now in a social distance, virtual. It's it's actually it's been thrilling because. Um, you know, for the you know, like, I, like I was a public high school English teacher for seven years. You know, I was nominated for Teacher of the Year seven years in a row, and I won it twice. And I was upset when I won it both times because, like, my mentor teacher my first year, uh, Mrs. Madison was my mentor teacher my first year, and, and she said to me like, "Be nominated for Teacher of the Year, but don't win it." She's like, "Because if you're nominated, that means you're doing great things. But if you win it, that means they like you too much. You know." <laughs> so. Um, so, you know, and, 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 but then this whole, you know, you know, it was sort of like Deaf Poetry Jam. Like after I did This Is A Suit on Deaf Poetry Jam, like um, a, a college in Dallas 
you know, saw it and asked if I could come do like a half hour of poems for students. They paid me. I was like, what? You will pay me to go read poems for your, for half? Like, yes, I will go do that. And then like someone was there from, from a college in Fort Worth and saw me that night and was like, Hey, can you come do a set like this with maybe a Q and a or a workshop afterwards and do like an hour and a half thing. And I was like, and they're like, we'll pay you. And I was like, yes, you know? And, and, and so then I transitioned away from that and, and started doing this touring and writing and stuff that I've been doing. So this experience I have with students right now is the first time since I stepped away from my classroom where I have students, you know, you know, every other day that I'm, I'm, I'm working with and, you know, and I, and I, I missed teaching and, and, and my, my mentor professor, Mrs. Madison, who I'm still very close with says to me, like, you're still, te- you're still a teacher, you know, mm-hmm. when you go do a, a four day workshop at a university, a poetry workshop, you know, you're still teaching. In fact, she was the one who dubbed me. She like, she gave me this title that I, to this day, I still try to own very much. She's like, she's like, I don't care what anyone says. You're a teacher who moonlights as a poet. That's what you are. Mm. And I like that. And so like now I, you know, cause people would always ask me like, you miss teaching. Like, cause like, you're still kind of teaching, but do you miss that, that AB schedule that every other day you get to see someone and watch them grow for a semester. And my answer was always absolutely. Yes. I miss it. I miss it horrendously. I miss it with everything because there's nothing like it. I mean, there's nothing like it. Like I've been on a stage in front of you know, 12,000 people, but like when you have 32 people, young, like 16 year olds, like, get it mm-hmm. like lean in and like you know uh it's that, that there's nothing like that moment you know nothing mm-hmm. I, I i remember in my classroom quietest girl in the entire 11th grade annika one day when we were you know we were discussing the scarlet letter and and she's like mr z you know like a pearl is mistakenly made by a grain of sand that you know by a fault finds its way into an oyster and Hester's daughter, Pearl, was born out of wedlock. So maybe perfection can come from flaw. And I'm like, what? Like, what? <laughs> are you are you 70? Like, how did you, how did that come in? You know, and like, I got to experience things like that every day for seven years. And and then now today, I'm, you know, I've got students that I'm working with today. So, so I'm, I teach a performance 101 class. Um, but I'm trying to teach it wisely because we have to perform things. We have to write things and perform them. But, you know, I can hear them perform without their camera on. And to me, like, that's enough. You know, like if I can hear the voice in the world that we're living in today, to me, that's enough. So like, I, I'm not challenging my students to, to open up their cameras. I'm only asking them if they want to during a performance moment, they can. Because, you know, I want them to feel comfortable in their space because like uh, not everyone you know, wants you to know exactly how they're living or, or, or where they're living. And like, I, I try to be absolutely mindful of that with, with the way I'm working now, because uh, the class I teach is actually a dual credit class. So I'm teaching upper class high school students who are taking a college course. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I was 17. And, and like, when I was 17, that was the year after my grandfather passed away. And so, um, you know, like when, when my grandfather died, like, I just kept living in that little casita, you know, after the funeral and I, I was alone. And then like a week later, like a man came and like said, you have to leave. Like your grandfather didn't own this house. He rented it for me. He's like, go, like, go. So like, I had like, like I had no home. Like I, I would bounce around from like couch to couch, family member to family member. But I was, I was so angry at the world at that time because my grandfather was hit by a drunk driver and uh, in his car and, 
so I just had so much fury and anger in me and, and, and I, I would take that out, you know, that, that I would lash out. So like trans, you know, if you transition me to like my home would have looked like, like the kitchen where I worked that I slept in some nights or, or, you know, the Austin street center for the homeless in downtown Dallas, or cause I slept there some nights or, you know, even like a park bench by Lee park, you know, like I, I just had to, I had to do what I had to do. Mm-hmm. And so like, I, I try to be really mindful of that when I'm working in this virtual experience with young people. Uh, so yeah, so it's like, it's in terms of like seeing their faces and having the camera, like to me, that's, I don't ever want to, I, I want my students to be comfortable. And if that means I don't see their face, but I hear their voice, that's enough for me. Yeah. But it's, it's a tricky time. It's, so we're having to be creative and we're having to, you know, do things differently. Like I wanted to do in this, in this course, I wanted to do a really big unit on the group dynamic. But a couple of my students have let me know that like the, the, the hotspot that is not theirs, they don't own a hotspot. The school like gave them a hotspot for free. Like it sucks. And like they pop in and out all the time. And so like we can't have a dual because like someone might be like pop out for like a minute, you know, and like have to be admitted back. So like I scrapped all of that. Like, hell with all of that. Like let's just do, we'll focus on the individual this semester and, and we'll still be brilliant, breathtaking. Yeah. And, uh, you just, we, we have to, you know, we have to redefine and reimagine and just do things well, do things wisely. Yeah, well, you've definitely been uh, an innovator throughout the years. You've definitely been an inspiration to many people throughout the years. Uh, and obviously, without saying a mentor to many. So uh, clearly, these kids are in good hands. Uh, and you know what you're doing. This has been a really great conversation. There was, conversation yes. there was one one more topic of conversation that you wanted to talk about uh, that I'm just gonna disappear for a moment because all, all I can say is Tim Duncan is a person. <laughs> and that's about it. Uh, so what is it about basketball? Because there was this jump shot. That's the third greatest thing you've ever done in your life. That's about basketball. In middle school basketball, there was one turnaround jump shot that was perfect. Like that was God, I remember it so well. Like I remember I remember Kirby. In his really short shorts, was like, way to go, Joaquin! Like, way to go, Joaquin! Because my <laughs> form was so perfect. Um, you know, I think the thing that I love about basketball is uh, it takes me back to to this kid that I grew up with, Manny Valdez. And Manny was uh, Manny was the the, the vato loco in the barrio who was embarrassed that both his parents had jobs and like pretty good jobs. You know, like his mom worked for the post office. And his pops, like, uh, I don't remember what his pops did, but like, like a worked at a like it was like a supervisor somewhere, you know. And so like, like Manny had things, and like he didn't like people knowing that he had things, because like the Vario Vario East Side, like it sort of ended where the M Streets, this part, this part of Dallas called the M Street, starts right where the Vario East Side ends. And like he lived on the first M Street, like it was like Monticello or something like that, or Mercedes. So like he lived like like he lived on the the very edge of the barrio, like another block over. And like we were like, Nah, Maddie, you're not one of us, homie. Uh, but like, so like he had things, and he lived in a in the edge of a of a different neighborhood. Um, and so like he had a basketball, and none of us did. None of us had a basketball. 
Like I don't, I never had a ball period. Like if I, if Manny wasn't around, like I, I, like I wouldn't know how to ride a bike, you know, because Manny had things and we didn't. And so like Manny's role was like, he would leave things out on the porch. Mm. And so he would leave some of his things out on the porch for the mocosos and the barrio. And, and as long as we put it back, he was cool. Just like take it, but just like bring it back in a couple of days. So like, because Manny had a basketball, we all had a basketball. And uh, so we'd get, we'd, you know, we'd go get Manny's ball and we'd go over to, to Bonham Elementary where I went and uh, and they had these horrible like chain uh, net basketball hoops that were crooked and like not regulation height at all. <laughs> um, and like we spent so many nights out there, like, cause they would, they would cut the lights on for some reason uh, in that back part of the parking lot, right where the basketball court was. And we'd just like, we'd hoop to all hours. And like, I, you know, and I used to like joke with people and I, I, I'd tell people like, like I'm, I'm the biggest Mexican I, you, you'll ever meet. You know, like I'm, you know, I'm six feet tall and I'm not really six feet tall. I'm like five eleven and three quarters, right? <laughs> I'm six feet tall. So like I was five eleven and three quarters in eighth grade, right? So I was like, I, you know, I want to see y'all later suckers. Cause like, uh, when I'm a senior in high school, I'm gonna be like seven feet tall. <laughs> I'm gonna be like the first, you know, Mexican American professional basketball player. So look for me in like a handful of years. And like in my senior year in high school, I was five eleven and three quarters. Like I just stopped growing. I I, was, I don't think I was getting a protein or something. <laughs> but, but I still, you know, so I, like I, because I was like a tall kid for my age, I, I was, I you know, I was, you know, I started. Like I, I played football. I played soccer like every kid in the audio, mm -hmm. you know, and like, I, you know, I too wanted to be a professional soccer player, but like I sucked, you know, like I was not good. And my deals would, and Diaz would let me know, man, my deals and Diaz were hell, man. They were hell raisers. They would let me know like you sucked at it. Neil. Like, you <laughs> just so, you know, like not good. Like we were, we were cheering for you because we love you, but like you, you were horrible. Yeah. Um, but like on the, on the basketball court, I could, you know, I could, I could, I could, I could, you know, I could hold my own. Mm. And I think that at the end of the day, for me, like that's what I love about basketball is I think basketball is not like it's not like golf, it's not like hockey, like you don't like you don't need like a, a an equipment set mm. to play it. Like if one kid in the neighborhood has a basketball, you can go out there in chanclas and play horse. You know, you can go out there barefoot and just shoot by yourself. I did, you know. Um, so I think at the end of the day, for me, what I really love most about basketball is it, it's a, it's a poor kid's game, mm -hmm. and I was a poor kid, and uh, so I love it. And uh, yeah, well, you know, two things. One is if you don't already have a poem called "Because Many Had a Basketball," I need that poem, right? Yeah, and then secondly, uh, it kind of reminds me of the have you read that Walt Whitman poem by Sherman Alexie? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, where he talks about like, I mean, it's 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 about it's about basketball and the yep. beauty of basketball. Absolutely. Um, from that from that perspective, nothing about Walt Whitman, by the way. It, it's so crazy you mentioned that because, like, like here's some real talk for you, like, like real talk, like the reason, like I applied to like five different MFA programs, and I got accepted by all five. But when you line up the profes, you know, against a wall, like. Four of them, half were white male, right? And I've done that. Like I've, I've I've had that experience. My whole undergrad was mostly white men, straight white men. 
were profes. So I didn't want that, you know. I wanted I wanted profes who came from the world that I came from, meaning who came from struggle. I, I didn't want to study under someone whose father was a professor and whose father before them was a professor, right? So when I looked at all the profes at, in, at the Institute of American Indian Arts, you know, Nadia Diaz, you know, comes from the desert, you know, and uh, and Sherwin Bitsui comes from the res. And and to be perfectly honest with you, like real talk here, like it was Sherman Alexi. Like that was the reason that I selected the program that I selected. Mm-hmm. This was before everything came out about Sherman Alexi. Right. And like when everything did come out about, you know, you know, what a womanizer he was, you know, all I could think about was the women, you know, like, because I like I, I live with women. Like I have a I have a partner who's a woman. I have two daughters who are young women and I have an, my mother in law, my, my wife's mother. We take care of her. She, she lives with our puppy. Bellissima. She's a she's a woman. She's a young woman pup. So so like uh, and like this book I'm writing right now, which is tentatively titled Not Ravens But Crows, is in honor of of brown women and um so like when i found out about you know all these things that were coming out it was like damn did i did i choose the right program because i like i specifically i wanted to study all those others but like i know you get a mentor professor each semester who you know you work with all of them but then you have this mentor who's going to be like your one-on-one for the entire semester and like uh like sherman only worked with with second year students and i was like now when i get my second year you know sherman lexi is gonna be dope and then like everything happened and, and and I ended, it ended up being, you know, at the end of the day, like, I was so glad that I made the choice that I did. Mm. Because even though, like, I, you know, I, you know, I didn't spend a second with Sherman Alexi, I spent so many extraordinary seconds with Nali Diaz and Shoa Mitsui and, uh, you know, Santi Frazier. My God, Santi Frazier was like, I, you know, he, he, Santi Frazier is a big part of this. So I, I owe Santi, like, so much. And so it ended up being the right choice for me. And I, I will tell you right now, like, you know, like, um, you know, I haven't taught Sherman, you know, in, you know, years. I haven't taught a Sherman poem, a Sherman short story, and to be perfectly, perfectly honest with you, like, I taught Sherman back in the day more than I taught anyone. Like, that was my go-to. Like, if I want to get a kid addicted to reading and writing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach him Sherman Lexi. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't do that anymore, um, and and I don't have to because there's so many great writers out there writing today. You know, I can get a kid addicted to poetry with Denez Smith, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a beautiful time to teach because so many thrilling, brilliant, and also good people are, are writing today. And uh, and that's important, you know, like, I, I think it's important. Like, I, like you know, that, that whole like, and you, maybe you shouldn't meet your idol, you know? Cause like, if you meet your idol and then they're, then they're a jerk, like, you know, like, um, and like, I'm nobody's idol, right? I'm nobody's idol, but like young people, when they come up to me, like, I just, I try to treat them with the utmost respect. I try and treat, I try and honor women every chance that I can, because like, it's just, I don't know. Like, I don't understand why people do some of the things they do because it's just like, if you just do the right thing, you know? Yeah. Just, just do the right thing. And, and you'd be, you'd be amazed, like what will happen in your life? You know, like, because I feel like some of the blessings that I've been given as a touring working poet have come my way because I just I try and treat people well. You know, yeah. and, as you know 
think we all should. And I think we we definitely did the right thing in asking you to come on here uh, because this really has been a phenomenal conversation. Oh my gosh, I hope I haven't kept you all so long. Do I, do I still have time to close with one poem or no? You are totally fine. Yeah, yeah. The only one that's complaining right now is my dog who's like, um, it's dinner time. What is going on? Okay. Uh, Can I read one last one? Please, please close this out. Okay. Really fitting that I'm reading this poem, uh, where I'm reading it, words and shit, because uh, this poem has the word shit in it a handful of times. And uh, this is a poem that when I uh, got asked to do a TED Talk about a year and a half back, they asked me to send a transcript of what I was going to say. And like, no TED Talks ever asked me to do that. And um, so I sent this poem as part of it. And they were like, um, Mr. Joaquin, I don't know if, uh, you know if we could have that. It has the word shit in it a lot. So I was like, fine, find someone else. <laughs> so, you know, so I didn't do that TED Talk. But I've done like 10 other TED Talks. So you know, it's all good. Um, so this is, this is, uh, this is called signs and, uh, I don't like all of my poems, but I love this poem. So I love this poem and I, I'm going to read this poem, uh, for as long as I can. And it's, this is going to go in the new, uh, the new manuscript that I'm working on now. And, uh, I was in, I was in, um, uh, um, uh, Portland for a writer's conference for a week and, uh, I got to experience Portland. And uh, so this poem is, is about Portland. So this is called Signs. Today, a crow shit on me. This is not metaphor. This is fact. This poem would be more romantic and less true if I wrote it Raven. But it was in fact a crow. There are more Black Lives Matter, Love Wins, Diversity is Celebrated posters hanging in storefront windows in Portland than any other major city in the United States. I have been here four days. I have yet to see a person of color in Portland. One might argue the 25th largest city in this country is not a major city, but with a combined statistical area, it comes in at 18. I find a bar graph online depicting the racial makeup of Portland. 74% white, 8% Asian. 6% black, less than 1% American Indian. There is no bar graph labeled Latinx, Latinx, Latina, Hispanic, Chicano, Mexican American, Mestizo. There is one labeled other. We might be in there. A group of crows is commonly called a murder, but can also be known as a muster or storytelling. Some of the most woke white storytellers live in combined statistical areas that are 74% white. Those writers, too, have signs in their front yards that read, all people are equal. People and planet are valued over profit. Women are in charge of their bodies, as do their neighbors. There are signs everywhere in Portland. There is no way for sign makers to keep up. I do not know why a bird shitting on you is a sign of good fortune. I fall back on the advice of my students. Mr. Ghoul and shit. So I do. Theories vary. The first search yields me three possible answers. One, it's messy and disgusting. So is childbirth. So there must be something good about it. Two, after being shit upon, yes, the website used the word upon. It did not use the word shit by a bird. One's day surely cannot get worse and thus can only get better. Three, it has everything to do with the odds. Something along the odds of winning the lottery, of being killed by a white police officer under the North Skidmore overpass near Interstate 5. If you see five crows, sickness will follow. If you see six, death will follow. This is not fact. Perhaps it is metaphor. Certainly it is superstition, but aren't all superstitions rooted in truth? And just like that, 
I see a person of color in Portland, somewhere near the corner of Powell and 12th, a striking, robust black man pictured on a billboard that reads, this is a toxic free zone. Sitting in Pine State Biscuits, I can hear the two white cooks calling back to Alberto who is washing dishes. From the angle of my booth, I cannot see Alberto, but I can hear him. He is there. He is not other. He is here. He is. I count 29 white people eating biscuits and fried chicken. As I stand to leave, I notice a button on a white man's backpack that reads, immigrants and refugees are welcome. Thank you for listening to me tonight. It's been an honor. Anyone wants to pick up a copy of Arsonist, hit me up. Uh, you can find me on uh, all my social media. I can uh, mail you a signed copy or one that's not signed if you like. Uh, I can, I, we'll get it to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> please, Thank please. Thank you for coming, yeah. Joaquin Siwatanejo on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can also tip the poet if you want, Joaquin-Siwatanejo on Venmo, or go to www.jzthepoet.com to purchase his merchandise. Buy that book. Buy all any of his books. You will not regret it. Um, give, him money. give him money. Yeah. Before we say goodbye to you, Joaquin, yes. uh, I would like you to share a few words, because next week we have... Your hermana from another mama what? coming on to this show, Natasha Carizosa. For anybody that doesn't know who Natasha is, can you just give them a teaser? Okay. Um, my nickname for her is Best in the Business. Uh, so you got to tune in because, you know, uh, I call her Mana because Mana is short for hermana, but also Mana is like like my hand, so like my right hand. Um, Natasha is my sounding board for poems. When, when I, you know, every poet needs a sounding board. So like, if you're gonna be a great poet, you need to find a poet who's stronger and smarter than you, that you can send poems to and bounce them off of. My sounding board is Natasha Carisosa. She's stronger than I, she's smarter than I. Um, she's brilliant, she's breathtaking. Uh, she's a mother, she's a dreamer, she's a teacher. Um, she's everything that's right with poetry and right with the world. And if you tune in next next time, you're going to be, you're going to experience something that's gonna it's gonna it's gonna feel like uh, like church, you know, in a way. But like the right church, like the way church should be, you know. So yeah, so be ready for something spiritual and something magical and something extraordinary. I love it. I love it. And she's so humble too. She's always like, I don't know if I'm right. I'm like <laughs> Natasha. You're Natasha Carisosa. You're always the right choice. <laughs> Well, thank Excellent you. introduction. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today, Joaquin, and thank you for that fantastic preview for next week because it's going to be a great show. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, Eddie, that was. I know. I know. Yeah, I need like, a tequila. Now. <laughs> a tequila. We got a week, we got a week to like recover. <laughs> a tequila is a chaser to Joaquin Siwatanejo. <laughs> I want to take it. Um, well, this has been fantastic. Uh, thank you for everybody that joined us. Of course, you can now follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Words and Shh. 
you can also get more information about anything that the Blah Poetry Spot and Write Art Out is doing by following them on Instagram, Write Art Out, or Facebook, The Blah Poetry Spot. Um, and you can catch up on past episodes by listening to our podcast. That's right. Wherever, wherever you look for your podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts. Absolutely. Um, I think that's it. I think that's it, yeah. There we go. Until then, let's go get some tacos and tequila. That's right. But not together, because, you know. No, because <laughs> social. So, until next week, that was Eddie Vega. And that is Chico Ordunia. Y'all stay safe out there. Good night.